We are in Daniel chapter 5. So here we are. Remember, Daniel's now about 80 years old. He's in retirement. Several kings have come and gone since Nebuchadnezzar. It's like 30 years later, plus. Belshazzar is on the throne. Remember that they're, in the, they're having a big party. They're wine, women, and song. They're getting intoxicated. And all of a sudden, a big hand appears and starts writing on the wall. Not surprisingly, they're all freaked out. So much so that the queen mother hears the racket and the noise. She's in her chambers, but she comes out to try to comfort Belshazzar because he's really upset. And she says, wait a minute. He, he called in the, uh, all the other Chaldeans, the, uh, the wise men, the astrologers, and so forth, the sorcerers, to try to get them to interpret the writing on the wall, but they couldn't. So she tells them, I know a guy who could do it. Daniel. And so they call for Daniel. And then we're going to pick it up here in verse 18. I'm going to read this section, 18 through 31, big chunk. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. This is Daniel speaking to him now. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all people's nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owes all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mini, mini, tekel, ufarsen. This is the interpretation of each word. Mini, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, which is connected to Upharsin, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and it's where it gets really interesting, because remember the promise that Belshazzar had made for anyone who could tell him the meaning of the handwriting, he would give them all this wealth and make him the third most powerful man in the kingdom. In spite of the negative message, Belshazzar gave the command, they clothed Daniel with purple, put a chain of gold around his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word today. We love the stories of Daniel, the amazing accomplishments that this man 
was involved in, all because of his absolute dedication, commitment, faithfulness, loyalty, and trust in you, Lord. Lord, bless this time of Bible study now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So before interpreting the writing on the wall, Daniel embarks upon a brief recap of the history of Belshazzar's predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. And so as he always does, notice what he says here, the Most High God gave these things to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel always acknowledges the one true God and the fact that he is the one who establishes kings and kingdoms. 19. Because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. So again, Daniel reiterates that the source of Nebuchadnezzar's majesty is the one true God. And then he goes on to say, whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. And so forth. And so he, your predecessor was one bad dude. He was very, very powerful. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, verse 20, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. We remember the story. Seven years, Nebuchadnezzar was out there living like an animal, basically insane, lost his mind. What I tell you over and over again, sin will make you crazy. It also happened to King Saul. So what happened? Nebuchadnezzar had been so mightily blessed by God, and that leads to an interesting thought. Even non-believers can be blessed by God. But sooner or later, if the non-believer doesn't acknowledge where the blessings came from, there will be consequences. That's happening to our entire nation right now. We know that not everyone in the United States of America in fact, there was another article that said by the year 2025, less than half of Americans will be identified as Christians. Less than half. Right now, we live in a time where there's kind of a 50-50 split in many, many ways when it comes to gay marriage, when it comes to abortion. The nation is kind of evenly divided. But in, within three more years, what they're predicting is the Christian viewpoint... That doesn't mean everybody's a Christian. But even those who operate from a Christian viewpoint will be in the minority. And I've estimated for many years that a more realistic number in terms of those in America that are truly born-again Christians would be more like 25% at best. But our nation, arguably, with the possible exception of ancient Israel, is the most blessed nation that's ever existed on this planet. And that's because our founding fathers and mothers wove into the fabric of our nation, the founding of our nation, godly biblical principles, morality, ethics, the Ten Commandments, endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, coins that say, in God we trust, and so forth. 
And even though not everyone that's lived in America over the past 250 years or so, or even longer going back to the pilgrims in the early 1600s, obviously not everyone has been a true follower of Jesus Christ. But if you're listening today and you're not a believer, you're watching online, you're here in person, if you hang out with believers, the blessings are going to flow over onto you too. That's what's happened in America. Because of the faith of some, and perhaps at one time the majority, it would appear, Alexis de Tocqueville in the early 1800s came over from France. He was a French historian. He traveled across America trying to figure out what it was that made America great. And you know what he decided? The flaming pulpits of the preachers of America. There aren't very many flaming pulpits left. Well, there are, actually. <laughs> but we're not interested in that particular kind of flame. He meant fiery pulpits where preachers were breathing, fire-breathing the truth of God and calling people to repentance and humility. And he determined that if that ever went away, America would go away. And that's where we find ourselves today. Pray for more fiery pulpits in America. And you know what? There are many people, believers, operating within the realm of secular News, journalism, I've read articles by a number of them. They identify very strongly as believers, and some of their criticisms are leveled towards the wishy-washy, lukewarm, weak church for not speaking out more. And I find comfort in that because we do it here. But many don't. So what happened? And this is Daniel recounting for Belshazzar the history, the legacy of the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, the greatest of all, and yet he became an animal because God gave him opportunity after opportunity to acknowledge him, to forsake his idols and worship the one true God. Finally, he got too big for his britches and God had to cut him down to size. Verse 21, then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Nebuchadnezzar, in spite of all his glory, his majesty, his power, the massive magnitude of his kingdom, he had to learn that God is the boss. And fortunately, he did. But you, his son, verse 22, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. So in spite of the legacy, we believe probably this term, you, his son, can indicate that Belshazzar was either the, the son, the grandson, or some other connection, even just a predecessor. It can have a number of meanings. But there's too much of a timeline distance between them. More likely he was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember we talked about this last week. The term father can simply mean a predecessor on the throne 
or in this case, it may indicate that Belshazzar's mother, the wife of Nabonidus, remember, Nabonidus was the king. He retired to Egypt, and he made Belshazzar his co-regent there in Babylon. So it could be that Belshazzar's mother, the wife of Nabonidus, was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, making Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar's grandfather. But your son, you his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Although you knew all this, years before Nebuchadnezzar had issued a decree, we read about it in chapter 4, giving everyone in the empire his testimony of how he came to know the one true God through that seven years of tribulation that he went through. It was a matter of public record. Belshazzar had to have known. And as we've also seen, Belshazzar's mother, the queen, was fully aware of all this, probably told her son the stories of his grandfather and his conversion to the true God of the Jews. Daniel is basically telling Belshazzar here, you are without excuse. And it's funny that people will sometimes bring up the argument, well, what about the people in the remotest parts of the world who have never had opportunity to hear the message of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would it be fair for them to go to hell if they've never heard? And yet we have people right here in America who have heard, and they are without excuse. But listen to Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, not the Big Bang, the creation of the world, His, God's, invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, not evolved, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, even if you've never heard that specific message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has revealed himself in his creation, and therefore all human beings are without excuse. And here it's Belshazzar that's without excuse. Verse 23, And you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels. Remember last week we looked at how they brought all the, the gold and silver vessels from the temple? sacred implements dedicated unto God that they'd stolen from the temple when the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem, took the people of Judah captive. They brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. So here Daniel is holding Belshazzar accountable for three things, basically. One, pride. You've not humbled yourself. Two, for desecrating the vessels from God's temple, thereby blaspheming God. And three, idolatry. Gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And I'm sure we could come up with a list as big, if not bigger, for our world today, the world we're living in, the society that we're living in, of all the false gods. As we go on in Romans 1, 21 through 23, because although they knew God, 
And I've made this argument before. The atheist, the agnostic, the non-believer, all these people who deny God, deep, deep down inside, I believe they know. They don't want to know. They don't want to yield to him. They don't want to submit to him. They don't want to humble themselves before him. They don't want to admit, just like we saw with this moralistic therapeutic deism, oh, everybody's basically good. No sinners here. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. Talked about our country, all the blessings that God has bestowed upon us, and now we've forgotten where they came from. I say we in the general sense of the whole country. Nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Futility. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Boy, this explains a lot, folks. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Verse 4, Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, from God, and this writing was written. So Daniel's telling him. So it would appear that the hand and the writing had subsequently disappeared. Everybody saw it. Belshazzar saw it. The lords and ladies saw it. Daniel didn't see it. And it apparently had disappeared by the time Daniel came into the room, making his interpretation even more amazing, more supernatural, more powerful. Without having seen it, Daniel is able to recount to the king the image, the words, and the meaning. And by the way, God's message here is not a warning. It's a pronouncement of judgment. We go on. Daniel tells the king, this is the inscription that was written, Mini, mini, tekel, ufarsen. Now, the writing was in Aramaic, which was the common language. But, just like on the day of Pentecost, people were speaking in tongues that, that were not known to them, but in that instance, the people listening understood in their own languages. In this case, even though it's a language they should have understood, it was obscured from them, setting up the stage for Daniel to come in. It was unintelligible to anyone but Daniel. And so Daniel tells them this is the interpretation of each word. Meaning, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. This is not a warning, it's a proclamation. Meaning means numbered. And it's repeated here for emphasis. Numbered, numbered. God has numbered the days of Belshazzar's kingdom, and its time is up. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Tekel means weighed. Remember in ancient times they would use those balancing scales to make sure you were getting the proper exchange for your money for whatever other um, item you were bartering for and trading for to make sure that you were really getting 
what they said you were getting. Tekel means weighed. God had weighed Belshazzar, and the king did not measure up to God's standard of righteousness. Belshazzar was a lightweight, if you will, one who was unfit to rule, one who worshipped idols rather than the true God. And then finally, he switches the word up here from Upharsin to Perez. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. This is the second empire on the giant image that Nebuchadnezzar had seen so many years before. Perez, and again in the King James it is translated Upharsin. Perez means divided. The U means and, so divided and divided up between the Medes and the Persians. In other words, the army at your gates. We talked about this last week. They'd been under siege for years, but they thought they were safe and secure because of the giant wall around the city and the river Euphrates running through was another barrier. But the armies of the Medes and Persians were able to divert the water, cross over, and enter the city. So in other words, the army at your gates will prevail. Put a fork in yourself, you're done. It's over. And again, what happens next is extremely interesting. Belshazzar gave the command. They clothed Daniel with purple, put a chain of gold around his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now Daniel had already turned down his offer for wealth, for power, for position. Daniel says, I'm going to do it, but not for you. I'm doing it for my God. But in spite of that, and Daniel telling him the harsh, hard, cold truth, the king still gives him the honors. Folks, that should be a lesson to you and I. If there's ever this, a temptation to say, well, if I just back off and chill out, then maybe I'll get some of those perks. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to offend anyone. So maybe if I just chill out a little bit, I'll get the robe, I'll get the position. And I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> That's what a lot of preachers across America have done. But Daniel didn't, and God blessed him anyway. Because he stood firm, he stood his ground. He told the... You realize, Daniel just put his life on the line with a message like that. Belshazzar could have had him immediately executed. But instead, he went ahead and gave him all the promised... Because Belshazzar didn't say, if you give me a nice message, if you give me a nice interpretation, I'm going to give you all this stuff. He just wanted the truth. Who knew? He got the truth, but there's another point to be made here. Even the most vile of kings would not violate his own word, at least not in Daniel's day. In the ancient world, your word was your bond. Remember the king's edicts were irrevocable? In spite of the horrendous nature of of the interpretation, Belshazzar still gives Daniel the reward that he didn't even want. Albeit a very hollow reward at this point, 
with the uh, change in regime just hours away, Daniel's new role as third in the kingdom probably wouldn't last very long, right? But you'll be surprised at what happens when we look at it next week. I would say, would that we Christians put as high a premium on keeping our word as this pagan king did. Jesus in Matthew 5, 37, he says, Let your yes be yes, your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And yet how many times have we done this or been tempted to do this just to tell some, someone what they want to hear to get them off our back or to make them like us? when we didn't really have any intention of keeping our word? As believers, we should not do that. Let's be honest. There are times when we have. If we have, we should repent and ask for God's forgiveness. How many of you think we should live by the words of Christ? Yes? Let your yes be yes, your no, no. But your word, you might offend someone. Well, are you worried about offending God? And if you honor God by being a person of integrity, of honesty, of truthfulness, God will reward you and bless you for it. And if someone gets offended because you've been honest, then that's between them and God. Okay? I don't mean you have to be harsh, mean, nasty. But let your yes be yes, your no be no. James 5.12 so we had it from Jesus, now we have it from James. Well, above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Chastisement from the Lord. Jesus and James both reinforced the ethical principle of, one, don't make promises you cannot or do not intend to keep. Two, say what you mean and mean what you say. If you say it, then integrity demands that you do it. Belshazzar, a non-believer, understood that. And this has always been one of my favorite psalms. Not, not because it's flowery, fluffy, you know, cozy. It's a really a psalm of accountability written by David, Psalms 15. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle or in your presence? The Bible teaches us as New Testament born-again, spirit-filled believers, we are the tabernacle, but it also represents that place where God's presence is, the holy of holies, the inner sanctum. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Because I want to be there. Who may dwell in your holy hill, Mount Zion, symbolically of that place where God dwells? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Does that mean we're saved by works? No, but it does mean in order to be close to God, to have intimate relationship with God, to have fellowship with God, these are things that we need to be doing. Walking uprightly, working righteousness, doing the right things, speaking the truth in your heart. 
He who does not backbite with his tongue. That never happens in the church of God, does it? No backbiting here. No gossip here. I think we're better than most. I'm proud of you guys. I really am. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. You ever had someone that you thought was your dearest friend turn on you? How many times? It's been a lot for me, I'll tell you that. But that doesn't shake me. It doesn't shake my foundation, my faith in God, my belief in God. Don't let, ever let what somebody else does or say affect your relationship with God. Don't ever use that as an excuse. God, I used to love you. I used to follow you until so-and-so did that to me. Really? God didn't do it. Don't blame it on God. Don't use it as an excuse to turn your back on God. Is that just a cop-out? I think so. I've heard it many times. Verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. You're a hater. You're a domestic terrorist. You need to be in jail. God says we're supposed to despise a vile person. I just saw this clip again the other day, back when President Trump was in office and they were trying to deal with the border with the MS-13 gang members who were going around chopping people up with machetes right here in America. Trump referred to them as animals. Nancy Pelosi went after Trump. Doesn't he understand that the spark of divinity is in every human being? How evil, how horrible for him to call them animals. But God says, despise a vile person because if you are vile, you chose to be vile. So I guess I'm in the same camp now with Trump. I tend to go along with what God says. Well, that's mean and nasty. Uh, God's not mean and nasty, folks. If he said it, there's a good reason for it. But he honors those who fear the Lord. Do you want to be honored by God? Fear the Lord. Hello, don't be vile. Don't be a pervert. Don't be a pedophile. Don't be a rapist. Don't be a murderer. And I could add a lot of other things to the list, and you know what I'm thinking. If you want to be honored by God, fear Him. Honor Him. Obey Him. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. What does that mean? If you make a promise, let your yes be yes, your no be no, and wait a minute, what if you figure out after you made the promise, wow, that's going to be a problem. I've got to drive all the way across town to pick that person up. I'm paying almost $4 a gallon for gas. Yikes, I don't know if I want to do that. Well, you said you would. It's just a small example. That's what God means here. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. And if you find out after the fact that it's going to cause you some hurt, you've got to do it anyway. This is the kind of person that may abide in his tabernacle, that may dwell on his holy hill. He who does not put out his money as usury. In other words, 
If you loan your, some money to a, a friend, a family member, whoever it might be, you don't charge them interest. Now the ancient Israelites were guilty of doing that and God didn't like it one bit. In fact, the Bible goes beyond that and says you shouldn't even make it a loan. You should just give it to them. But he who does not take advantage of his fellow man. Oh my goodness, 29.9% intra visa, MasterCard, thank you very much. Wow. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Ooh. Might be a little bit of that going on around here, you think? Whole lot of bribing going on. He who does these things, the good things, the right things that we've read here, shall never be moved. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They will never be shaken, never be moved. If you want to be immovable in Christ, walk uprightly. Work righteousness in your life. Speak the truth. Don't backbite. Don't do evil to your neighbor. Don't take up a reproach against your friend. Despise a vile person. You can pray for them. Jesus died for them too. But the reason God says despise them is because if you don't, you're likely to start thinking like them. We've talked about this recently. Bad company corrupts good morals. And I've talked about this before too. This is the elephant in the room. When we delve into the realm of homosexuality. Oh, they just love each other. It doesn't matter who you love as long as you love. But when you really allow yourself to think about the vile nature of that practice... It is vile. That's the truth. That's not emotional. That's not subjective. That's objective. That's truth. And if you don't embrace what God is saying, that we have to despise that which is vile, then you will slowly but surely, like the frog in the pot, my friends. You know the story of the frog in the pot? If you put a, a frog in a pot of boiling water, you know what he's going to do? He's going to jump right out, just like you would. You ever gotten a bathtub that was too hot? A shower that was too hot? You're going to be gone real quick. But if you put the frog in a pan of just room temperature water, he kind of likes that. Ew, this is pretty comfy. And then you just gradually, slowly turn it up a little bit at a time. And he will sit there and let you cook him to death. So if you like frog legs, hello. That's what's happening in our world today. That's why it's not mean or nasty or evil for God to say, despise the vile person. Jesus died for that vile person. But if you don't despise what they do, you've heard this phrase before, God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. If we don't hate what God hates and love what God loves, ultimately we're going to be in trouble. Okay? Psalm 15. Keep that psalm in mind. It's a guideline. It's a guidebook for you on how to have intimate relationship with God to be a godly person. Okay, verse 30. That very night when Daniel went into that 
big banquet hall in front of the lords, the ladies, Belshazzar, God, and everybody, and told him what was written on the wall and what it meant. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain after he'd given Daniel all those rewards and awards. It didn't buy him any favor with God. People try to do that, don't they? That very night, Babylon fell to the Persian army commanded by Gubaru, also known as Darius or Darius. The night of that banquet, as I already mentioned, the enemy diverted the water of the Euphrates by means of a canal linked to a lake. With the water diverted, its level receded, and the soldiers were able to enter the city by going under the sluice gate. You know what a sluice gate is? It goes up and down. Since the walls were unguarded, the Persians, once inside the city, were able to conquer it without a fight. Both Herodotus and Xenophon described this historical event. The date was October 12, 539 B.C. And our final verse for today, verse 31, And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now his identity is uncertain, like some of the things from history way past. He may have been Guberu, a governor under Cyrus, the king of Persia. Or Darius may be another name for Cyrus himself, some believe. Or he may have been Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, who served as ruler of Babylon. But nonetheless, he is the one who receives the kingdom. And regardless of his exact identity, we know that one, he had at least a one-year reign as recorded in Daniel 5.31, Daniel 6.28, Daniel 9.1. At least a one-year reign. He appointed various governors, making Daniel one of his three most intimate counselors. We'll look at that next week in chapter 6. Three, and we'll see this next week as well, he was tricked by Daniel's enemies into issuing a decree which Daniel could not obey and was subsequently forced to throw his friend Daniel into the lion's den, one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible, I think. Fourthly, he was extremely happy when Daniel was miraculously saved. We get to look at all of that over the next couple of weeks. Again, Daniel is past 80 years old now. He may be old, but there's more excitement to come. So if you're old... Get excited. <laughs> it's not over till it's over. And fi by the way, we're never too young. You know, just about every night I thank God that he made himself known to me as a preschooler. I accepted Christ when I was about four years old, and I've always believed in him ever since. And I thank him for making himself known to me, revealing himself to me, and being with me throughout my entire life. You're never too young and you're never too old to love God, to know God, to serve God, to follow God. And by the way, if you're on the old side, as long as your spirit is willing, God can quicken our flesh. Amen? Let's stand. We're going to bow our heads and just focus on the Lord. If you have a prayer request, at this time, please raise your hand. We want to acknowledge those before God. A lot of hands, a lot of hands, and that's okay. God wants to hear from us. We shouldn't go to him last. We should go to him first. Father, you see every hand. 
You know every person. You tell us even the very hairs on our heads are numbered. So you know every heart, every mind, everyone that's raised a hand, and maybe some that didn't raise their hands, but in their heart of hearts they do have a prayer request this morning. We lift them all up to you in Jesus' name. Father, the health issues. Lord, the older we get, the more of an issue this becomes, but we know that many afflictions can uh, affect people of any age, as we talked about from the youngest to the oldest. So we lift them all up to you. Lord, whether it be allergies, sinus infection, cold, flu, COVID-19, monkeypox, whatever it might be, Lord, you have authority over all of creation. You have authority over sickness and death. You created us. Your word says we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Lord, you can supernaturally touch us, heal us, restore us. And that's what we asked for this morning. No matter what the affliction is, Lord. And there are people who've raised their hands that have specific illnesses in mind. It could be cancer. It could be heart disease. It could be lung disease. In Pat Sir's case, it could be her kidney. Lord, we pray that her biopsy would bring forth nothing problematic, that you would keep her new kidney functioning properly, that her body would not reject that kidney, that you give her health and strength. And Lord, for anyone else in a similar situation, we lift them all up to you now. And Lord, help us not to become discouraged, weary, downhearted when we struggle with physical afflictions. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. And we do pray that you would uplift us, strengthen us, regardless of what we're going through. But we do humbly beseech you for healing, Lord, for physical healing, for mental and emotional healing. Lord, for the struggles with anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief. Lord, heal our hearts and minds as well, we ask in Jesus' name. And Lord, help us to look to you first for that healing. Lord, we pray for the comfort of your Holy Spirit to be upon each one, that you would lift them, lift depression off of them, lift anxiety off of them in Jesus' name. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us for giving way to fear. Lord, you told us to bring everything to you in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving and your peace, which transcends all understanding, would guard our hearts and our minds. Help us to lay hold of that promise and hold on to it tight. We pray for financial issues, Lord, that those can be very, very troublesome as well. But forgive us, Lord, when we get, allow those things to overwhelm us. Lord, help us not to be living under the circumstances, but help us to be living, as your word says, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Help us to see ourselves up there next to you, Lord, looking down on those problems, that they are underneath us and you are with us. And Lord, we do pray for your provision. Help us to do our part. Lord, you said if we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, all these things would be added unto us. Help us to focus on that, to focus on you, and to trust you to take care of us, to provide for us, whether it's the need for a job, a better job, Lord, financial rescue from a difficult situation, Help us to keep our eyes on you, and we ask that you would take care of us, Father, as you promised to do so. Finally, we pray for relationships that may be damaged or broken. Father, we know the enemy comes to destroy, to kill, to steal, and to destroy, but you've come that we might have life and life more abundantly. We pray for abundant life to be poured out upon our relationships, marriage relationships, family relationships, friendships. 
Lord, you know of specific instances that are on the hearts and minds of people here today, a relationship that's been damaged or broken. We pray that you'd help us to be those who would promote forgiveness, healing, reconciliation. Whenever it's possible, Lord, your word says we're to be at peace with all men. Help us to do our part and then trust you to do the rest. And we do pray that there could be healing of these relationships. But Lord, help us not to be hindered, discouraged, dragged down by anything that's beyond our control, as we talked about in the message today. Lord, no matter what happens, as, as Job said, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. No matter what happens in this life, we will always follow you and stay with you, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. Ask you to receive now our final offering of worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>